Hi, and welcome to ContourCast. My name is Kat Boyd, and I'm joined, as ever, with my lovely, glamorous, clean-shaven, I don't know what the equivalent of like that for a haircut is, co-host David Jameson. Thanks very much. Sheared, I think. That's how she- it felt. Yeah, sheared. After sheared. about five months of no haircut, uh, I dashed out in the middle of the day to, to get it all just shaved off. It was such a relief. I mean, of course, uh, you're not clean shaven. You've still got the sort of uh, the Reich moustache. Yeah, I mean, it, it's excusable on the basis that it's very kind of World War One era. You know what I mean? It's kind of, uh, it's, it's got a Prussian quality to it, I like to think. Yeah, okay. Okay. I think. Um, there was I actually, um, I remember once I was, I was um, uh, reporting from an SNP conference and a delegate tweeted that that awful David Jameson was here with a Hitler moustache. Um, but in the picture that they said, no, it was a video they sent out, the light was catching it in such a way that it genuinely did look like a Hitler moustache. Um, but yeah, it was quite, it was quite funny. Um, um, a SMP member the other day said that I was vacuous. Hmm. I think it's because I've now got this like blonde bit at the front of my hair. Oh, I see. Yeah. I have no idea. So, see, I've been meaning to ask about that blonde bit, right? Hi. Did you, where did the idea come from for that, Cruella de Vil? So, I've got a grey patch at the front of my temple. Right. So, it's grey here. So, as lockdown progressed, it was getting more and more weird looking and like grey, but very blocky. So I thought, I can't dye my hair black because I'm allergic to box dye. Like, it makes me break out in a big rash and stuff. So I thought, fuck it, I'll just peroxide it. I mean, why not? And if it all goes horribly wrong, then, you know, no one will have to look at me apart from the um, the 80 hours a week that I spend on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I, honestly, like I could try and tell you that I had an idea of what I wanted to do, but it would all just be bullshit because the truth is I'm just very, very bored of lockdown. Yeah, yeah. Demoralized, I would say. Yeah, uh, it, it's uh, it's pretty grim. Like uh, we were we were discussing before we started on the podcast, we can't even remember the things that we used to do. Uh, because my life consists of one leisure activity, which is going out for a walk. You and, the rest and you the... you loved walking, and I love a walk. I uh, walk compulsively, and it's even starting to bore me. Yeah, uh, I mean, I would usually say, "Oh, I wish I could just like go out for dinner or go to the cinema," but to be honest, like you can go out for dinner now, can't you? You can go I know, out for but it's dinner. Going to be annoying. You'd be you can annoyed go out for, for dinner. Anything. Um, be served by someone in a fucking hazmat suit. Nothing says bon appetit like a face shield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the cinema, do you know, I can watch stuff at home. Um, I've actually been on a real movie binge um, at the moment, going through all the classic film noirs and lots of neo-noir as well. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very enjoyable. Um, I keep meaning to write up everything that I've been watching. Um, 
recently rewatched Michael Mann's masterpiece Heat. Have you seen that? I've seen it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. What a great it, film! It's good. Is that is that a first time watch? It's first time watch. Um, well, I've I've seen it like before, but about ten years ago. Yeah. Um, Famously, it's the first time De Niro and Al Pacino were on screen together, not in the same film together, but on screen together. It's also, amazing. It's, it's such a well put together, and I love Michael Mann's high camp style of directing. Like the mm. kind of everything has that Miami Vice sort of feel to it. Yeah, and that meeting between Al Pacino and De Niro is famous because this is what Michael Mann's good at. It's sort of he knows it's a historic cinema moment. And so there's a question over how you lead up to it. And he manages to make you anticipate it and build up to it without making that come across as like too meta. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm making a commentary on this Hollywood moment. Um, but also famous for a great shootout scene. I was, this is, the, this is another one of these examples to reference back um, on ourselves in a previous pod where we talked about the, the wire, you know, people saying that the wire should be cancelled because it humanises cops, blah, blah, blah. Like, this is one another one of those examples of where the entire time during that shootout, I am rooting for the bad guys. So mm. whilst it might be a film about, like, cops and robbers in the traditional sense, like, I need to see that because I am cheating on Val Kilmer. He is wild in that role. Yeah. Just, like, gunning down everything in sight. Yeah, uh, you sometimes forget that Val Kilmer could be good in films. Um, but Al Pacino is so much fun in that film as well. That's another great Al Pacino. The <laughs> What's ridiculous, your favourite bit? Um, obviously your favourite Al bit, Pacino bit? The, the bit where he, where he shouts. I mean, he shouts all his lines, even when he's not supposed to be. That one about, because um, she had a great ass. You know, he's just screaming at that guy. You know, the, the, the guy who um, says... You mean the bit where he comes in and he's like, you can sit on my couch, you can drink out of my... Like, no, no, you can it's, drink it's... beer out of my fridge, but you can't watch my fucking television. No, and he's got good. this, the world's smallest TV. <laughs> yeah. It's like a 1990s portable telly. And he just like smashes it to the ground and then like... Not that scene. I love that. No, no, that. no. The one where a character has been betrayed by the woman that Val Kilmer is uh, sleeping with. And he, at one point he says, you know, why did I ever trust that so-and-so? And Al Pacino just springs to life and screams at him because she's got a great ass like that. <laughs> I don't remember that bit. Yeah. I do not remember that. Bit. That that bit might never have happened, and I've imagined that in my <laughs> in my head. I've just coming up with all these these great uh, Al Pacino moments. Oh, I love when um, the girlfriend finds out about Robert De Niro and finds out that he's a criminal. I love that, and her like the internal conflict that she obviously has, and then and then he leaves her. You yeah. know the bit like if when she's left in the car outside the hotel. God, yeah. And it really it comes to that moment where the line that they've been saying throughout the whole film, like when you feel the heat round the corner, you have to be able to leave in thirty seconds with nothing. Mm, and it mm. pinnacles at that point, and he leaves her standing there, and that's when then there's the the shootout at the the airfield. Yeah. 
Um, if, oh, if anyone listening hasn't seen Heat, by the way, it's totally ruined. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's ruined. But also, even you don't the, have even to watch the scene it now because Gina was talking about asses. That's um, ruined for you. You don't have to watch it now though, because me and David have basically just enacted it. Yeah. <laughs> Who would you rather be, Al Pacino or Robert De Niro? I'd have to go for Al Pacino. Yeah, even I'd go De Niro. Even though De Niro is obviously like. On a, on a certain level, he's more kind of like handsome and suave, and that's do you know what I mean? But Al Pacino's just so totally nuts. Like the characters he plays are so like larger than life and all that. Can kind I of stuff. say something that might get me cancelled? Mm. I think Al Pacino looks right. Bear with me here, a tiny little bit like Cliff Richard. <laughs> right now, there. There's a kind of, there's a hair thing that's happening, like a low hairline that happens with both Al Pacino and Cliff Richard that makes them look kind of similar. You don't it see would, it, do you? It would have been a much worse film with Cliff Richard in that role. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, of course. Although, if you were in a shootout from like one of those like summer holiday buses, like the double deckers, you would have a yeah. really good vantage point. That's true. That's true. See, when I'm putting this video on YouTube, what I'm going to do is, at this point, I'm going to cut in a picture of Al Pacino and Cliff Richard mm-hmm. next to each other so that people can really uh, understand that I've not lost the plot. Okay, okay. Because these episodes are, of course, available on YouTube now. Um, mm-hmm. Although we've been having quite a lot of sound problems. Um, so apologies for that. We will try and get it sorted out. Um, so, who have you been upsetting this week, David? Oh, as many people as I can get away with. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I've I finally got finally got fed up of Scottish politics. I mean, permanently. But I I do feel that new levels of detachment from reality are being achieved in Scottish politics. I don't, I don't know if you read Adam Ramsey's article in The Guardian. Now, in many ways, it's pretty standard fare for um, Scottish political journalism. It's one of these articles that once again says, look at the massive contrast between not Nicola Sturgeon in the Scottish Parliament and, and Boris Johnson in Westminster. But the picture that it paints of the Scottish Parliament is totally nothing to do with reality. Um, and I don't just think that people are being... Uh, um, are, are ignoring in order to service their argument or whatever. I think that there's a genuine, this is part of a genuine ideological moment. There was that famous New York Times piece a few weeks ago, which basically makes this exact same argument. Look how much better the treatment of the COVID crisis has been in Scotland than in um, England. Um, and uh, yes, no, almost no relationship to reality in any of these pieces. That's a, that's a, a real moment, I think, in the development of national consciousness. I, th- I suspect the pandemic is going to become a moment in the development of Scottish national consciousness. But as always with those kind of things, it's like, it's mixing in good and bad. It's mixing in some quite complacent attitudes with, along with some quite sound ones. I mean, obviously, it's absolutely correct that the UK-wide response has been a complete disaster, uh, among the worst, in the worst in the world. And I had Trump and Bolsonaro not being in charge of Brazil and the United States, it would have been the worst 
you know, had it, had it honestly not been f- for a couple of people who are total <clears throat> flakes. Um, but uh, the the beautification of the Scottish government's role is uh, totally ridiculous. Um, and the uh, the Russia stuff, likewise, grim, uh, I think, in a lot of ways. Like, a few years ago when people first started saying that Russia had been this major force in the Scottish independence referendum. Something for which there's still no evidence, by the way. Um, So the background to this, obviously, is last week, the report was finally released by the Commons Intelligence and Security Committee. Um, And basically, it's evidence that there was involvement by Russia in the Scottish independence referendum amounts to uh, the fact that some newspaper articles had been written claiming this. Um, which is remarkably similar as it happens to the evidence that led us into the war in Iraq. So the, the evidence in the, um, of WMD in Iraq came from, what is it they call it, credible open source material or something like that, which means um, information that's out there on the internet that anyone can access. So anything, a newspaper article, a PhD, a master's thesis, uh, the on these things, you know, intelligence, British intelligence apparently uh, base can base their decisions. Um, so that's the sole claim that some articles have been written claiming that Russia was involved in the 2014 independence referendum. This only became a big idea, of course, after the US election. That's when people started to make this claim about Scotland because it became the go-to explanation for why there was so much disruption in Western politics. I think that that's what it reeks of to me, is that there's a there's a desperation. And I see this argument put forward by people who would be traditionally centrists as a way for them to understand what is happening in politics. Like, why is Trump being elected? Why is Boris Johnson prime minister? Like, they're desperately searching for reasons which fit into their centrist worldview and they Mm. need a bogeyman to do it and Vladimir Putin is a perfect one yeah um yeah he's perfect for them and um but the 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 strange thing is that I think there would have been more defenders of the 2014 referendum even a couple of years ago but I'm talking about among power adjacent layers in society media politicians mm-hmm. folk, more people like that would have said you're just trying to tarnish the, the, the memory of that movement which is a very important um moment in the development of modern democratic politics in scotland obviously um a couple of years later there's much less resistance from 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 people who are kind of like liberal nationalists you know, people who are more closely attached to the SNP leadership, um, the kind of world of media and commentators around them and so on, there's a broader acceptance that this is real. And what's happened in between, of course, is Brexit and and stuff like that. And so um, Stuart Hosey, the SNP MP, uh, was the person who actually announced the uh, the findings of the Commons Committee. Um, And he started by conceding that Russia had interfered in the 2014 Scottish independence referendum. And then he tried to use that to, to, to say, given that, you know, given that this goes back to 2014, why weren't you prepared for 
the Brexit referendum in 2016. So there's a clear um, dynamic there where he's saying, I will trade away to, to, to prove to you that I'm a, a sincere actor on the Brexit question. I'm not just in this for partisan reasons. I'll give you the 2014 referendum, and then we have to look at the 2016 European re referendum, um, which is, I mean, it's stupid on a number of levels. One is that if you're a nationalist MP, your priority really ought to be the independence movement in Scotland and the demand for Scottish independence that you've just undermined. But also because that's not how power works. That's not how smears work. If, this, if the UK government needs to defend now because of Boris Johnson, has to defend Brexit as a legitimate process to legitimate the UK government, they will do that. They're not, they're not weak like these SNP MPs. They won't just say, okay, I'll give you the Brexit referendum. There was interference in that, so long as you don't come after my government on that basis. That's not the way powerful people work. They'll just tell you to do one. Right. Yeah. I mean, we've already seen an example, like Boris Johnson's government, right, for, you know, everything that's been <laughs> uh, going wrong with it recently is still able to hold ground. I mean, we can see that with something like the Dominic Cummings scandal. Like, yeah. he, was, he was just going to double down because really the opposition is now a complete joke. Mm -hmm. Um I don't know. I haven't checked the polls recently, but Labour was still mad, like 20 points behind the last time I looked. Um, so they can, they can, if they can write out um, anything, they can write out Brexit, they can write out Cummings, they can write out all of the deaths that have been caused by bad decisions, you know. Yeah, what makes you think that anyone in the country gives a shit about this nonsense you've made up about Russia? <laughs> the idea that that's going to land yeah. a glove on the, on the UK government, whose polling position is improving with the lifting of lockdown. Um, but also, like, I mean, so yeah, the idea as well that, like, the Labour Party or the SNP can move this on to a discussion of uh, Tory donors, you know, because of this idea that London has become like this laundromat for oligarch money and all this kind of stuff. Again, that's not how power works. The last people who are going to be victimised in this country are Tory donors, right? <laughs> Independent supporters get it in the neck for being Russian bots, right? The Labour Party might get it in the neck for that if it actually has real beliefs and attitudes, you know, like Corbyn did, right? Social movements will get it in the neck for being Russian bots. Tory donors, that's not going to happen to them. I, and I th I, here's <clears> the thing, right? In that report, that, that Corbyn's report, the only things that were mentioned as incidences of Russian involvement were 2014 independence referendum, the Trump election, the US, the 2016 European referendum, and, 20, and the 2019 uh, uh, ref, uh, general election, only for the reason, of course, that it finally killed off any attitude about resisting Brexit, right? So clearly, the whole idea of Russian intrusion into British politics is only applied to the bits where things didn't work out, basically, for the ruling class. Um, and people forget how widespread this is. Angela Merkel accused the German school strike movements of being a front for Putin's Russia, right? So uh, even, um, what's her name? Um, the leader of that movement. 
Greta Thunberg. Greta Thunberg. See, everyone's Greta... forgotten Greta already, man. Like, coronavirus really, like, if it finished anything, it finished that. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder how she's going to... I get. I have a feeling she has a future. But, any, well, possibly because she's a puppet for Putin. She's got all that Kremlin money behind her. <laughs> all that how, Kremlin cash. Yeah, yeah. Well, how do you think, you know, yeah. Who do you think was paying for her packed lunches when she was sitting outside her school? Putin. Um, yeah, so even Greta Thunberg, you might have thought of that as the most carefully kind of curated and pandered to social movement. Do you know, it's one of those that um, the powerful made sure that they, are, they were in the tent pissing out type mm-hmm. thing. Even that, even something as, uh, you know, marginally disruptive as, as that movement um, was blamed by that supposed liberal, you know, enlightened technocrat Angela Merkel of being a, a Russian, Russian agent. And almost no movement in, in the Western world uh, has gone without that accusation for, the, for about the last five years, four or five years. Um, the Yellow Vests, famously, that's Putin. I mean, I think, I think a whole area of liberal and left-wing opinion just accepted from the off that there was some kind of Russian involvement in that. Do you know what I mean? Because it was a bit, it was a bit, uh, do you know what I mean? Is it, it, a bit grotty. A bit grotty, that one. I love you know, this, really, Sean. Oh, if, if even dear Greta Thunberg is a Putin agent, they definitely are. Mm. Um, so, yeah, uh, again, we're, we're just in this world of, you know, total unreality. The really weird thing for the Scottish independence movement on this is, uh, so Stephen Daisley has an article ah, in The Spectator. I was going to bring this up because actually I love this article. Yeah. It, I love I mean, this article. It's called um, Why Putin Wants Scottish Independence. It could also be uh, why Cat Boyd and David Jameson want Scottish independence. Um, yeah. And the argument that he's making is basically that the US imperial project in Europe um, through NATO would be destroyed or uh, substantially weakened by the prospect of Scotland becoming an independent country um, thus damaging the West and the UK-US alliance mm-hmm. and therefore benefiting Putin Yeah and, and the thing is uh, he makes a pretty good argument and I think he's right on all his major points and the only thing I would disagree with in the article is I don't think there's any evidence that, you know what I mean? Like the only evidence he actually provides in that is that Russia today were in favor of independence during the 2014 referendum. Uh, I really like when he, he says um, Sputnik moved its headquarters to Edinburgh. Yeah. Like as, as a point of evidence. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean. But I, I actually suspect that is why they decided to do that because their attitude was we'll get more fertile um, you know, responses in Scotland because of the independence movement, because there's a whole area of Scottish political life who feel like the media has totally failed them and who are interested in a project which would be very disruptive to the British state. Um, But, like, here's the thing. Uh, He's right. I think, on balance, Putin would want Scottish independence. My attitude to that is... Who cares? That's not an argument against Scottish independence. No, of course it's not. But I also, I think it's like, it's it shows this weird new development within Scottish politics that we've talked about before, which is not so much that 
you know, people's the the difference between people's political positions are, you know, whether they are for independence on one side and against independence on the other, but actually like how you relate to the establishment within that type of political debate. So when Stephen Daisley talks about Putin wants Scottish independence because of Trident or because of the damage it might do to NATO, on the other side of the like the pro-independence flip side to that argument is no 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 what you don't understand Mr Daisley is that actually Scotland could still be a member of NATO do you know what I mean so actually like you have like you have a Stephen Daisley type character and there are a few out there and we know who they are they know who they are who would be quite happy for Scotland to remain in NATO and to continue to you know have Vladimir Putin as the the bogeyman to, to fight against or to define ourselves against. I mean, whereas, you know, that's just not the type of independence that I'm interested in. Like, I don't want to be part of NATO. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, does that make, does that put me like on Putin's side? Does that put me in the pay of the Kremlin? I don't think so, but this is actually beginning to show the fault lines in the debate within the Scottish independence movement. I don't see how how Scottish independence can be um, attached to the the NATO project, but this yeah. is this is what is it going to end up happening? Is that these types of arguments um, that are put forward by Daisley are going to be addressed by the the SNP kind of establishment, um, and it's going to be oh well we don't have anything to worry about um, in terms of like NATO or the UK's military power because you know we'll still work as partners, we'll still work through NATO. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that manoeuvre solves the problem of Daisley as far as they see it. Though it doesn't yeah. really. I mean, it's, it's weak on two fronts. It doesn't really. That Putin would still prefer uh, Scotland in NATO and in the European Union and, you know, using the UK's currency, but technically, but formally outside of the, the Union. Um, he'd still prefer that to the, to the status quo. There's actually no way... Uh, if you're a, a pro-establishment Scottish independence supporter, your politics are incoherent. I mean, they don't actually make a great deal of sense. And people like Stephen Daisley are still going to be able to pick holes in you. But the, the so the trade-off is stupid for that reason. But it's even more stupid that because if you know what I mean, if you try to deeply integrate Scotland into the world system, into the Washington consensus, and so on, as your path out of the, the formal union. Uh, with the rest of the United Kingdom, you're just going to create an area of traditional independent support who are like confused. Why are we doing this? What is this for? Um, like the currency stuff is a real disaster. I mean, I think it's ridiculous that for some people still argue that that didn't hurt us in 2014, that we didn't have a serious answer on the currency. I mean, if we, if we went into a future referendum with the current proposed poly, uh, currency position, they'd rip chunks out of us. Do you know what I mean? They'd ask us questions that can't be answered. What will you do when the next inevitable financial calamity emerges? What will you do? You won't have monetary policy. You won't be able to protect yourself. And I'm afraid to say that's going to be a valid argument. And it's going to create real problems in the independence movement because if someone asks someone like us or just anyone who has a sound understanding of how the modern economy has functioned in the last 20 years 
says to me, oh, but if we become independent and we don't have our own currency and our own central bank, and then an economic crisis comes along, we're going to be flattened, right? I would, I'd just have to say, yes, that is true. But here's what I think the currency should be. I mean, you know what I mean? The, 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 the formal leadership of the independence movement is threatening to riven our movement with impossible contradictory policy positions in order to appease the only people they ever talk to. The only people they ever talk to are think tankers in Washington and London and Edinburgh and politicians in those countries and, you know, politicians in Brussels and economists in these various capitals who are telling them that in the real world of big grown-up politics, making sure you're friends with London and Brussels and Washington is really where it's at. And do you know what I mean? And, and, and anyone who tells you otherwise is just sort of living in a dangerous fantasy or whatever. The problem is that doesn't work in democratic politics, um, in a mass democratic event, which is what national independence would, uh, would need to be. So all of this work of appeasement, basically, of powerful interests in the global order is just constant damage and undermining of, of the independence uh, cause. I agree. What? <laughs> um, I was just checking what else is on our docket today. Um, there's the Starmer situation. Yeah, there's the Starmer situation. I mean, it's that is so depressing. Yeah. Um, I donated to Jeremy Corbyn's fundraiser last night. Oh yeah, I saw. Uh, um, someone tweeting that saying oh no there's, there's, an, there's an article i think in the times i'd need to check but there's an article in a newspaper in a major newspaper saying that jeremy corbyn needs to give all that money back because some of the people who have donated have been rude on social media wow that is exciting that's it's exciting great, isn't it imagine imagine like every fundraiser imagine that alex salmon fundraiser Oh. And people had to give back. <laughs> Anyone who's rude on Twitter has to give the money back. Anyone who's ever gone into Tesco, but then been a bad person, Tesco has to has to give them their money back and say, I'm sorry, I can't take this. We can't have bad customers at Tesco. Um, also, I, I'm getting ahead of myself here, right? But this is genuinely shocking, right? You know that grime artist, Wiley? No. So um, he's one of the kind of, uh, sort of godfather figures of the grime movement. And um, he has uh, sort of uh, gone mad. I was trying to think of a diplomatic way to say this. And is engaged in what looks like a 24-hour non-stop Twitter stream of weird, garbled, anti-Semitic guff, Right. Um, like really bad shit, really bad. Uh, and it's just a torrent. Um, and there are people saying, you know, why is Twitter allowing this to happen? Really bad stuff. I mean, that kind of stuff of, um, he's coming from the angle of, um, Jewish people control the music industry, hold down black people, exploit black people, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a full on. Uh, rage and, and just totally irrational um, 
and uh, people have started, the, the UK government's advisor on anti-Semitism has tweeted Jeremy Corbyn, telling Jeremy Corbyn that he must silence Wiley. What? I'm not joking. So that's the UK government's advisor, right? I just, honestly, David, poor fucking, poor Jezza. What did he try to do? He just tried to, like, you know, get, like, a sound housing policy in the UK or something. A few years hence, the UK government advised on anti-Semitism is ordering him to silence a rapper who has become an anti-Semite. Uh, so bizarre man uh, yeah i just I, I just it really depresses me man i think it depresses me partly because jeremy corbyn right for all his drumming issues around the scottish independence and labor and blah 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 he's a good man right mm. like he's clearly had like a very principled career standing up for what he believes in and um, around like the iraq war and other on what would essentially have been for a long time very unpopular issues like nuclear disarmament mm-hmm. like see when we were talking about that um and rick and like talking about like that during the like the lead up to 2014 people still saw like anti-trident stuff as real fringe issues for you know people who look like jeremy corbyn <laughs> do you know what i mean and yeah. then suddenly it's catapulted into the mainstream. So I feel like I I feel like it's sad to watch a man who's had such a career and like I say just have that crushed um into you're an anti-Semite. That's just very tragic, you know. Yeah. But I I I said from the start of this whole campaign against Corbyn that the thing that really I find really chilling, really creepy about it is this is probably the first time in my life when it would be silly to say that this is like the most brutal thing I've ever seen. I mean, I've seen the, you know, we watched the Iraq war and stuff, right? But there was something about this and Islamophobia, you know, I mean, the whole state backed development of that, of a new racism, right? That was pretty creepy, but this is so totally irrational and obviously, obviously cynical. Like it's an obviously cynical operation. And most of the participants in it don't think that what they're saying is true. There's a special type of brutality to that, which reminds you that really bad things can happen in society. A society that, that, whose leadership is prepared to de- degenerate into that kind of activity is a society that actually has quite a tenuous relationship with democracy, quite a tenuous relationship with even sort of enlightenment attitudes they'd do anything like they the the people who run this state and it's um kind of various parallel organizations and the media and so on they do anything to not even hold on to power you know that you 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 always think of that as what would these people do if the chips were down right forget the chips down right what if the chips are making a very distant and meandering uh, path in the direction of the table, right? <laughs> That's quite a mental image, but continue. Yeah. Um, they they do this. They'd completely explode traditions and and uh, and sort of public decent public conduct on any kind of level 
and rant and rave in the most deranged and frightening sort of way and brutally punish someone, mm -hmm. anyone who mm -hmm. dared to disrupt the political system even slightly, even a little brutally punish. And they're trying to send a message to people. They're trying to say to people, we will ruin your life mm -hmm. <laughs> if you try to talk about, you know, reforming British capitalism in some moderate way, we will ruin your life. Yeah, I mean, this is why I tweeted that thing about cancel culture, which is another oh, hot topic at the moment, saying, well, of course, cancel culture is real because that's what happened to Jeremy Corbyn. Like, he had a very firm view on Palestine, which was completely unacceptable to the ruling class in Britain, to the established networks, you know, to, um, to the media. Like, and I think that that was used to basically cancel him. It might not be the cancel culture that people are talking about, but it's the same thing. If people are like, we will destroy your life because you think that, or this or whatever it happens to be then mm -hmm. then that's it's emotional terrorism and you just can't negotiate with that i agree um i i mean i um the thing is i don't i don't think it is like a a, a misuse of that phrase cancel culture to refer to what's happened to jeremy corbyn because and i think this is another uncomfortable part of um the discussion around this these I'm not saying that these tactics came entirely from the left, right? Smear campaigns have been around against the left for a very long time. You know, people often talk about this in relation to like the Zinoviev letter and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, often they do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, anyway, you know, I mean, you go down to uh, when I was in the hairdressers, I was like, oh, mind that Zinoviev letter in 1927 or whatever it was. And she was like, <laughs> yeah, of course. I often and think about the Zinoviev letter. Um, but um, so, but, but that said, what has been done to Jeremy Corbyn has been done using a lot of the ideas and the methods of the modern left. So the, the thing that's really interesting about this is it's not just about the Palestine stuff. It's also that they knew that if the accusation against Corbyn was that he was a racist and that he was leading a racist movement, the the establishment knew that the left would find it difficult to respond to that mm. argument mm -hmm. because what can they do? The left, the modern left can't say we're not racist. Even saying that you're not racist is kind of verboten in this situation <laughs> because everyone has to accept that they're a racist on some level. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone has to accept that they're a sexist on some level and so on. So you can't, you cannot uh, extricate yourself from that, uh, uh, from the accusation, you have to agree with the accusation. There's nothing else mm -hmm. you can do. And then it's just a slippery slope. Once you agree, you can't agree a little bit and then disagree with other bits. Yeah. I mean, you know I think that you very clearly saw this with Corbyn and the advice that he was given. Do you know what I mean? Like, you could see that as soon as he gave an inch on these things, like, it's as, as soon as he gave any room to the fact that, like, you know, there might be anti-Semitism within the party or whatever it might be, like, it just completely, like, started sliding. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, there's just, there's no way when that allegation was being thrown at him at personally, right? Now, this is, a, I think this is an important thing to say. It was, he was pinned with that personally. 
Like he was mm-hmm. made into this kind of caricature of a, an AC mate, which is frankly ridiculous. Um, <clears throat> but as soon as he started to give on that, then it just opened the opened the floodgates, um, and he was just he was always going to be finished by this, um, which is incredibly tragic. But this is why I'm saying like this is it's emotional terrorism, and you can't negotiate with these people. And I guess you're right; like it's probably not a misuse of the phrase cancel culture because that's how this stuff works. Yeah, I mean, it is literally. I mean. I mean, that, what that government advisor said, right, but this has happened so many times over the last few years, was Wiley is a racist, he's cancelled, and he is a racist, by the way, right? But Wiley is a racist, Jeremy Corbyn has, you know, 24 hours to condemn. I mean, that, that is literally what is being told, said. Jeremy Corbyn <clears throat> has 24 hours to condemn people, anonymous people who have given money to his legal fundraiser. He must distance himself. This whole thing of distancing yourself from people do you know what I mean? It's such a fucking joke. But this I mean, is that, the thing, David, right? Like, But that's been that, going on the left for years. In years, we have done that. You and I have done that. We have, Almost quote certain, yeah. unquote, distanced ourselves from people. Like, so, for example, let's, let's name names. Like, take Tommy Sheridan, for example. Hmm. Like, in the approach to not sharing platforms with someone like Tommy because of his place within Scottish politics and what he has done and the fact that ultimately you can't build a broad left when you have someone in it who you know 50% of the population think is a liar right regardless of where you sit in that there's a clear tactical question but it became very quickly like a moral question yeah, for the, for the left yeah. it became yeah. moralistic and if you were any way associated with that individual or like that organization and you were to speak at a hope over fear rally, then you would be cancelled by association. Now, I I was involved in those discussions, and I'm not now given a big kind of mea culpa. But I do think that that's the, it's the wrong tactics now, and I can like step back and see that picture as a whole. I just don't think that that's an I don't think that's an appropriate way to deal with difference um, or people's. Um, you know the the things that people have done are wrong. Like yeah. I just I just don't because we, as soon as we start to introduce those like moral, um, like kind of bars or moral hurdles that people have to clear, then you end up setting up a lot of bad faith arguments. And I'm so fed up of bad faith arguments on the left that if you have a political disagreement with someone, you can't call out their political disagreement. I see it all the time people who politically disagree with you, politically disagree mm. with me what they say instead of actually trying to challenge the politics or have a proper good faith argument is they say, well, you're not, you're not doing enough about X or you're not doing enough about Y. And that's bad faith. And it's partly yeah. our fault. You know, I agree because, because we've indulged that culture and you're totally right. I mean, that is a good example. The, the actual consequence of no platforming Tommy Sheridan is that he's on a lot bigger platforms than anyone else on the left. It's ludicrous. It doesn't work on its own terms. What people who, who, who want that sort of practice to be enshrined, what they really, really want to happen is for you to break the picket line around the anathematized individual. They want to anathematize someone, make someone uh, the kind of... the. the um, you know, put a cordon sanitaire around someone and then say, don't you dare go through that cordon, right? 
They then want you to break the cordon because you're trying to do something constructive politically, not because you fucking love Tommy Sheridan or whatever, because you're trying to um, politically intervene into the national affairs of the country, right? They then want you to break the cordon that they've constructed so that they can wag a finger at you and say, oh, you're bad too. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm going to build a cordon around you now, right? That's, that's, I don't want, and this is the thing is like, who wants a cordon built around them? Like, I don't want to go on Twitter and all my mentions to be like, you're an arsehole or you like rehabilitate misogynists or I don't want that, right? But what mm. I do want to do is talk to people about politics. Yeah, I know. You know I, I mean, know. like, <laughs> and if, if that's the plot, then, and I also want to be able to, like, for people who are better at talking about politics than me to be able to do that as well. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, I think if we start to draw up these lists of, again, to go back to a previous podcast theme for us, of goodies and baddies, who's acceptable mm -hmm. and who's not acceptable, then we are, like, we are trapping ourselves. That is a trap. It's a trap for the left, particularly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're building a road for our own back. People who engage in that kind of thing, and by the way, it's much worse in some other countries even than it is here. Like, there are some, I mean, in the US, I mean, you may have seen that um, Adolf Reed um, was banned from a DSA branch. Yeah. Uh, for, I, from, yeah, yeah. I mean, like a black anti-racist Marxist was deplatformed by the Democratic Social of America branch in, I want to say, New York. I think it might have been New York, yeah. I mean, that to me is like through the looking glass stuff. Yeah, but the people who do that sort of thing, and I think this is important, they don't do anything else, right? They're not really political and they're not really interested in politics. Um, it's a sub-political activity, which is why they don't care about constructing all those cordons and the disruptive impact that might have on trying to, to, to build a mass politics. They're not very interested in politics, ultimately. They're interested in um, positioning themselves as the kind of... Um, uh, the sort of moral janitors of the left. Do you know what I mean? Going around and making sure that all the kind of leaky taps and uh, squeaky doors of the left's, do you know what I mean, immorality are, are dealt with. Um, it's an unreal view of the world. Like, just so people know this, in every single moment of uh, progress in human society, whether it was the French Revolution or the creation of the welfare state or the conquest of the vote by women, uh, and so on and so on and so on. The people who did those things were bad people. Like, <laughs> those movements were made up of people with You're moral blemishes. You're doing scare blemishes. quotes here. Doing scare quotes. Bad, they were bad, bad people. people. Okay. They, uh, they were people who, um, uh, who had done regressive and reactionary things in their lives and said regressive and reactionary things in their lives. That's it, by the way. That, those are the only people. There are no other people. There, there isn't um, some elect of morally pure individuals to bring about social change in the world. I'm glad there isn't. I mean, I think I'd find those people fucking creepy if they did exist. Um, but they don't. And they never will. There will never be a, a, a mass social element that can bring about social progress in a society who are all pure as the driven snow. 
It's never, well, ever going to happen. The other danger of this type of politics is that it begins to entirely warp history and how we see history. So we've talked about that before in terms of what drives history forward is not this conflict between goodies and baddies, it's class forces that, that pushes history forward. But then what you end up having, like let's go to a modern day example, is that you have um, return of the center, Joe Biden, who is both a predator and a racist, calling Donald Trump the United States' first racist president. Did he actually say that? Yeah, have you not heard this? Isn't this wonderful? So Joe Biden um, has said that Trump's behavior is sickening um, and that he is the first racist president of the United States of America. And um, he says, the way he deals with people based on the color of their skin, their national origin, where they're from is absolutely sickening. <clears throat> Wait for this bit. And this is a quote. No sitting president has ever done this. Never, never, never. No Republican president has done this. No Democratic president. We've had racists. They've existed. They've tried to get elected president. He's the first one that has. Well, well, unbelievable, man. That is unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, even if you had quite a jaded view, (laughs) did you? I'm so happy. I'm so happy that you hadn't heard this, so I can get your like live reaction. Even if you had this really jaded, cynical view of the world that some people do have, I think, which is like some like do you know you get kind of liberals and stuff who are completely <laughs> appalled that statues were being taken down and all this kind of stuff and they were sort of like um this is a complex issue but it, there's a sort of view that says um because america is structurally racist therefore the presidents of the united states are not uh to blame for it right which is kind of true and kind of not right but even if you had the view that like you said well, someone, someone like Lyndon Johnson probably didn't like the extent of institutionalized racism in American life. He may have done little bits and bobs here and there to mitigate it, so on. Even if you're a kind of like liberal Democrat and that's your attitude about history, that you know, you're absolved from racism under your regime because you try to do a thing here or there to mitigate it. Um, like, is he totally unaware of the Nixon tapes? Do you know what I mean? I mean, right, if Tricky Dick is not a racist, then I don't, know, I don't know what's real anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's saying that Richard Nixon's not a racist, right? He is, like, I mean, George Washington owned slaves. Yeah. You've got yeah. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, right, who supported mm-hmm. segregation. Although mm-hmm. for a long time you weren't allowed to criticize Woodrow Wilson and like liberal institutions. Mm. Like my boyfriend got uh, kicked out of uh, a lecture at Glasgow University for ranting about uh, Woodrow Wilson being a racist. And that was back in like 2003 or something, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which you can just imagine. Yeah. So, I mean, and it's not just George Washington that owned slaves, of course. There's loads of, there was loads of slave owning um presidents founding fathers um loads of them were slave owners like i mean it's just it yeah so Mm. 
this this whole thing like this discussion that we're having i think that the other consequence of it is that it really warps history and then you mm-hmm. end up in a world where bernie's been destroyed right bernie's fucked and part of that is to do with the moral hurdles that he was expected to jump mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. and now you have a rapist and a racist <laughs> Well, that, saying that, that Trump is the only racist that's ever existed. That, this is in, it is interesting that like no one has ever called for such a cordon around the passing of Joe Biden or even Donald Trump. I've never heard the phrase, you know, no platform Donald Trump. I mean, that, that part of the, the whole problem with that way of viewing the world is if you are powerful, you are automatically absolved of any wrongdoing. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's because literally... If the only sanction available to to you is to wag your finger and demand that people don't walk into a room with when you're in it, that has no effect as soon as the person you're trying to criticize has any power whatsoever. Well, this was part of my like critique about this type of politics is that you know when particularly on the left or the far left, when people say, "Oh well, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely," it's like, well, no. On the left, my experience is that absolute powerlessness corrupt absolutely Hmm. so the smaller like your degree of power in society the more that people turn the tables on each other do you know what i mean literally turn the stall tables on each other Mm -hmm. like you know it becomes a competition about papers or it becomes like side swipes about who spoke to who or who's on whose side and blah 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 and all this like real mm, bad faith like kind of petty small arguments start to yeah. break out it's that famous thing that people say about student <laughs> politics it's so vicious because it's so meaningless you know what i mean because there's so little there's so little at stake i was never really election. involved in student politics thankfully <sighs> i mean i don't want to say it could anything be more pointless but it you know it did often have the feel of that um but um yeah, so basically, I mean, I'm very interested in this new convergence. It looks very much, and uh, you know, I also said I didn't think Trump was going to win in 2016. I said, I said I think he would just not make it uh, because it seemed like uh, it seemed like too far. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, so I'm not going to say I don't think he's going to win because I'm not going to make predictions uh, because they're useless. But um, Biden is really way out ahead. Um, I mean, people forget. I mean, Trump. Trump's big problem is that he can't be an insurgent because he has abandoned his promises to working class America, mm-hmm. uh, and that's going to hurt him badly. Um, I mean, I think that Trump's big sell was going to be on the economy, and coronavirus is like it's blown up. It's, yeah, it's totally ruined it. Um, so yeah, but but. So, but let's, I mean, I think that already now there is a, an attitude developing in Western politics uh, with a, a real area of truth in it that the centre-left, so-called centre-left, is going to uh, return. It's going to have a, a mild renaissance. I mean, certainly all of the, um, you know, far, further left or populist left challenges Syriza, Bani, Corbyn, uh, Podemos have all 
basically ended in failure. Podemos is they at least made it into government, but you know, to what end? Um, so that obviously that wave is receding, and there is, I think, going to be a, a minor renaissance for the centre, basically. Uh, and I also think that um, the populist right and the far right are in trouble. Um, they have, they've kind of reached the extent so far of what they can achieve. Um, and so I think there is going to be a bit of a reconsolidation in the system. And that, that poses significant problems, I think, if you're on the radical left. Um, in Scotland, I think that the immediate perspective of the SNP now is Biden will be in in November. And that changes the entire political equation because it then means that the United States, Biden, obviously his element of the ruling class are much closer to the European Union. They've then got Boris Johnson in a vice, basically, because he needs the United States for a trade deal. And I think the perspective of people like both Keir Starmer and Nicola Sturgeon is, Biden will put Boris Johnson in a vice between them and Brussels, or them in Berlin, really, and we will be the local section of that liberal international. Mm. And we'll apply pressure from within. Um, I mean, I think that you could be right. Um, what I would say is, I think that that's part of a product of coronavirus. Like, I think yeah. that that is part of the warp that's happened. But whilst... The, <laughs> The main issue here is that whilst they might, you know, have that type of centrist, like neoliberal politics, it that doesn't actually address any of the economic problems that are about to come because mm -hmm. of coronavirus. Like, and actually, like whilst it might have a the centre might have a brief comeback, then its its collapse again after that will be roaring. Yeah, I, I think what you could end up with is a series of dead duck centre-left governments. I mean, that's already basically what the Spanish government is. Yes. So so the, the Spanish uh, Socialist Workers' Party was supposed to be the big sort of, um, the, the proof that centrist social democracy could return and be effective. And it came to office in alliance with parts of the left. And it's just like a beached whale. It's just lying there. It's got no power. It's got no control over quite a hectic situation in Spain. Can't resolve any of the national questions, of course. Um, can't do anything about, uh, like, or refuses to do anything about the economic crisis. There was a great fanfare around the idea that it was introducing a universal basic income that came to nothing. It turned out just not to be universal, universal basic income. I think you're going to end... I mean, a Biden administration would be a disaster. Yes. It would be a joke. That man doesn't have four years no, of brain but it's health. about it's about the power behind Biden. Like, yeah. who is the VP? Who is the VP? Uh, I don't think like, like they've uh, picked one yet, have they? No, I mean, but, like, whoever is... Yeah. The, whoever is the VP is going to be the power behind Biden. And like, I think he's still under a lot of pressure to have a black woman. Yeah, I, th I suspect he will, a younger black woman. Um, yeah. Um, but the, the, the fantasy administration that they are in talks with, because they're already obviously talking about forming a government, um, it's wall-to-wall -wall bankers. It's wall-to-wall -wall, Wall Street, 
basically. Um, so it is very much like the American ruling class, the real, the, the majority section of the American ruling class regaining, you know, f- control of the state in a much more direct way to try and steer out of the, the problems that are being created by Trump and the pandemic. So it's a real kind of, I mean, it'd be wrong to say it's like a restorationist government that's coming in because Trump didn't challenge power. Like He didn't, yeah. he didn't challenge the deep state and all the shit he was saying. He didn't. He didn't drain um, the swamp. Didn't drain the swamp and all this rubbish. Uh, uh, you know, he just, he did more or less what the swamp wanted. Yeah. Uh, on, on, on big issues, on um, tax reform. Um, like Trump's policies are not Trump's policies. Trump's policies are the policies of the Biden administration mm-hmm. that's in planning right now. Fundamentally, fundamentally, they are the same uh, policies. Uh, so, yeah, uh, it's, it's not going to be a happy time in America the next few years. Like the, the carnage is going to be unbelievable. I mean, it's going to be bad in a country like Britain, but the economic carnage is going to be severe in the United States where mm. cases are still rising. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be horrific. Um, and that government's not going to do anything to protect the economic position of ordinary Americans, obviously. So I think that you're going to see a mild resurgence of the center. It will quickly become moribund and hated, uh, <laughs> thus recreating, perhaps, the same kinds of energies that have disrupted the global system in the last few years. But in a more like ferocious and hot fashion, I think. Yeah, and I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm dreading that that this aspect of the next few years, in this sense, I think that we're going to see a resurgence of um, a generally kind of economically and socially liberal hegemony. They're they're going to try and like neoliberalism is going to try and reassert control. Um, which is dwindling because of deep set changes in the in the global system, and I think it's go- going to generate even more uh, cultural turmoil. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. these sort of strange uh, phony wars uh, that that keep emerging. Like I think that attempts by the ruling elite to um, to exalt that liberal world order again will cause all kinds of confused angers and hatred to proliferate basically do you know what i mean these kind of conspiratorial attitudes about what the problems in society are Mm -hmm. and so forth are going to get worse because of that uh that process um incidentally uh i watched there's a bbc uh documentary about the 5g uh conspiracy theories um, I started watching it, but it didn't really. So boring. I didn't, isn't it? It, I didn't find it interesting at all. Well, I, I, I only raise it because it kind of confirms the arguments that we've made before in terms of they never once asked why this was happening. Their, their answer to why conspiracy theories are spreading is because of the internet, is, is it basically? <laughs> right. Um, there's no attempt to ask social questions no. about, about why they've become popular and so on. Um, um, I mean so, that's a really nice grim note to end on yeah yeah good good job <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you have any announcements to make um, obviously uh, Conta is uh, still fundraising 
there will be presumably more. You'll be hearing more about that. We're obviously looking for funds to expand our operations. Who knows, even uh, clear up the audio in these uh, podcasts. Um, what else? What else do we need to announce? I think just fundraising. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Um, we need to fix the website, the Connor website, which is good at the moment, but could be better. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, if you have enjoyed like any of the Contour lectures or articles or pods, you can make a one-off donation at contour.co.uk. Or if you want to set up a, a subscription, then you can do that too um, at, the, at the website as well yeah uh, and please do and if you haven't enjoyed any of the content please do send in your hate mail so i can read it on this podcast i will be honest like david i know that you love reading hate mail i know yeah. you enjoy it yeah uh, it's, it's a lot of fun it's almost as welcome as a donation send both <laughs> send a donation and um hate mail Mm-hmm. Um, because both are uh, valuable and gratefully received. Mm-hmm.